the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. When you hear the phrase human trafficking, what image comes to your mind? Despite the harrowing depictions seen in many Hollywood movies, for the 28 million people trafficked worldwide, the story is often quite different. So, what are the realities of human trafficking, both locally and abroad? And how do we stop it? The founding director of the Human Trafficking Clinic at Michigan Law, Bridget Carr, joins us to help shed light on the subject. Then, former FBI agent Andy Arena stops by to provide insight as well into how law enforcement tackles the issue. Next, on Detroit Today. Welcome to Detroit Today. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson, who returns tomorrow. When the phrase human trafficking comes up in a conversation, in my experience, there's a visceral reaction to it. And why wouldn't there be? Few things could be more appalling, in my mind, than someone choosing to exploit another human being in such a heinous way. But when we talk about the heinous nature of human trafficking, what are we specifically talking about? Are we all talking about the same thing? Are we all thinking of the same thing? When the phrase comes up, what image pops into our minds? For some, it might be a stranger trying to soup up a child at the mall. For others, an evil cabal from a faraway place, like we see in movies. But these images can prevent us from grasping the true realities and scope of this issue and what we as a society can do to prevent it. Yesterday marked the final day of the National Human Trafficking Prevention Month, recognized each year since 2010 when President Obama began the tradition by presidential proclamation. It serves as a time not only to raise awareness and aid prevention, but also to dispel myths and rumors that can be perpetuated about the subject. That's why on this edition of Detroit Today, we'll be taking a look at what people in and around Southeast Michigan are doing to combat the issue, including the efforts of law enforcement in this area a little later on. But before we get to that, we start our conversation with Bridget Carr, the founding director of the Human Trafficking Clinic at Michigan Law and the Associate Dean of Strategic Initiatives. Bridget, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. And just a heads up to everyone out there, we're going to be discussing some pretty heavy material related to kidnapping. And if that is too much for you, feel free to sit this episode out. But Bridget, I do want to get to this subject because, again, I do think a lot of people can have different images that pop into mind when we talk about human trafficking. So let's just start at the base level. What is human trafficking uh, for you and your experience and how we think of it worldwide? I love this question because we really are missing the majority of victims of human trafficking when we think about it as such an extreme, exotic, and unique crime. There's a narrative that for human trafficking to to exist, we have to have organized crime and people need to be snatched and and someone needs to be chained to a radiator. And um, that's not the reality of human trafficking at all. Human trafficking is really about relationships. Almost all of our clients in the human trafficking clinic knew their trafficker before they were trafficked, but whether because they were related to them or it was their employer. And human trafficking is really when someone compels you into service because of your vulnerability and their power and so that they can make a profit. Exploitation is at the heart of what I'm hearing from you there. And we're going to take a look at what the issue is both globally and locally here. But before we do that, you did mention what you do at the clinic. For those who aren't so aware, I want to give you an opportunity so they know exactly where you're coming from with this knowledge. Uh, What does the Human Trafficking Clinic at Michigan Law do? 
Right. And I think this is so important. Unfortunately, in the human trafficking space, lots of people talk about the issue and very few actually have on the ground experience. We in the human trafficking clinic, uh, we have two jobs in the clinic. One job is to educate Michigan law students to be the best lawyers they can be. And we do that by uh, helping them to represent survivors of human trafficking for free. Uh, and they do an excellent job or they fail. Uh, we represent men, women, and children, foreign national and U.S. citizens, and we have cases of both sex trafficking and labor trafficking, and our clients come from all over the world, including uh, U.S. citizens, uh, and we've been doing that for over a decade, and in my career, I have represented hundreds and hundreds of survivors of human trafficking. So with the boots on the ground experience that you have, how much of an issue can you define for us here uh, learning about this? Is human trafficking both uh, globally, as we hear about it, but also here locally where people might not think it's as big of an issue? Right. Well, one of the problems is that in the human trafficking space, cities want to race to the top. There is this race to have the number one issue with sex trafficking of children or human trafficking. And the reality is we don't actually have any good numbers for human trafficking uh, in the United States. We don't know where hotspots are. We don't know what cities have the worst problem or the least problem. But what we do know is that we haven't yet found a community where there aren't vulnerable people that other people could take advantage of for a profit. And so I think your listeners should really ask themselves, do we have vulnerable people in our community? Are there people in our community who might want to take advantage of that vulnerability to make a profit? And if the answer is yes, you likely have human trafficking in your community. Yeah, it's something that isn't necessarily seen. And you alluded to this earlier when you were discussing how relationships uh, can be very crucial to uh, uh, allowing this practice to continue. What kind of relationships do you see that are part of human trafficking that we might not necessarily know so much about here as a community? Right, because right, the, the myth out there is that human trafficking starts by someone being snatched from a parking lot in Great Lakes Crossing by a white van. And I get asked lots of times if I worry about my children in those parking lots. And my answer is, I do. I worry about them getting hit by an automobile. Like, that's what I worry about in parking lots. Uh, because I know that human trafficking doesn't almost ever start by someone getting snatched. It starts by someone trusting someone else, whether that be a family member, a friend, an employer. And then often based on that trust, believing a story that that trafficker tells them about a future that they might be able to have together or a future that that uh, victim might be able to build for themselves. And it's that trust often and that relationship that then means the victim goes somewhere with the trafficker or just stays in the same town um, but is exploited by that trafficker. And then the trafficker takes advantage of that vulnerability and there you have it. And then once a profit is made, you have trafficking. Yeah. We're talking with Bridget Carr, the founding director of the Human Trafficking Clinic at Michigan Law. And as uh, this subject keeps coming up, one of the things that we've been discussing here often people think of is sex trafficking. But as I understand it, uh, trafficking involves much more than just that aspect, although that is important and certainly deplorable. What other areas do we see trafficking that may not get as much attention but is still an issue in this space? Right. U.S. law defines trafficking in two areas, sex trafficking and labor trafficking. Um, and what we know is that uh, labor trafficking can occur in any industry uh, at all. And I have seen, I used to say that I have done this work for so long that I can't be surprised, but I am surprised still. And so I now say there could be any industry. And what I mean by that is we've seen it at um, you know, university hospital systems, we've seen nurses trafficked. We've seen it in athletics, where people have brought over from a foreign country, brought here to play basketball and forced to play basketball um, for 10 to 12 hours a day. Uh, we have seen it in uh, the U.S. Olympic system. We have seen it in PhD students. And so I think, you know, and then we see it in the places people are probably thinking about agriculture, restaurants, hospitality, those sorts of things. So I just have decided I'm no longer going to be shocked uh, when I see it somewhere. Mm. I want to unpack that a little bit because you mentioned the U.S. Olympic system. Is there something specifically that you're thinking about there uh, when you talk about human trafficking in that space? Yes, there have been a number of cases filed um, in and a number of them have settled out where the allegations have been that 
many of the athletes are forced to work in uh, conditions that include sexual abuse and other harms. And because the only way you can get to the Olympics is through the U.S. Olympic Committee, so there's no other path. It's not like uh, if I want to play college sports, I could play at Michigan or I've heard there's other schools. No, I mean, I could play at other schools. I have other paths in which I could play the game I want to play. If I want to go to the Olympics, I have to use the coaches they require, the doctors they require, use the facilities they require. And the U.S. Olympic Committee makes lots of money off me as an athlete. So if I have trained for years to get to that level, I am probably going to agree to lots of horrific working conditions to achieve my dream. And just because I agree to those horrific working conditions doesn't make it legal for someone to take advantage of me in that way. And so some people might say, we don't understand how Olympic athletes are vulnerable. But when you start to unpack that they have trained for many years, that there's only one path and that it's illegal for someone to take advantage of the power they have over that one path, you have trafficking. So this is interesting for me because when I think of the term, and one of the reasons we're talking to you is to understand the term better, I would think of an individual uh, through coercion or what have you, taking an individual with less means and basically shuffling them off to somebody else for profit in this exploitative manner. And what you're saying right now because I wouldn't think specifically of someone doing that directly themselves. It's pushing the individual to someone else, the person to somebody else. And is that what you're saying is happening in this space? Or well, is it you just don't be- have to. Go ahead. Yeah, you don't, you don't have to like push them to someone else. So Got let it. me give you another scenario that, that can happen. Imagine that I am not a law professor, but I am instead, um, I'm a, uh, an engineering professor and I recruit foreign national students to come to my university to get their PhD. And I also have a company on the side that I uh, hire students for to make money. Well, now imagine if I quickly figured out that I could hire foreign national students. And then when I hire, when I bring in foreign national students as my PhD students, I have almost total power and control over whether they get to stay on their visa. So much of our immigration system is built on total employer power over employees who are foreign nationals. And so I could say to those foreign national students, hey, if you don't work in my company, I'm going to tell immigration officials that you are not completing your PhD studies adequately. And all this time and money you've put in to get your PhD, it'll be gone and you will go home and be shamed or maybe be in really big trouble with your parents, whatever. But if you just work 10 to 15 hours a week for free in my company, all will be well. Mm. Well, I have just taken that power I have over those students who people might not think of as vulnerable, but they are in that relationship and I have made money off of them. You know, I remember during the World Cup, for example, a lot of stories were coming up about the labor that would be coming from other lands, people going into Qatar uh, for building and they would have a similar relationship to what you're uh, discussing now uh, Perhaps even more brutal, way more brutal, but uh, a similar relationship. I hear you using this at a domestic view. I'm wondering, is this generally accepted your thesis? Is this more of a novel legal argument? Uh, How is everybody else playing with this in this space? Do they agree? Is there disagreement? What have you seen with this? Well, I can tell you that uh, the case I just described in the PhD situation, uh, we we have represented clients in that exact situation that exact situation. We're seeing courts uh, really wrestle with the question uh, around the other types of scenarios I've laid out. But what we do know easily in the domestic context is that we have seen cases that have been won both in criminal courts and in the immigration system where where immigrant victims have been recognized and received a visa because they've been trafficked for all of the scenarios I I laid out, except for the US Olympic Committee, because those individuals would be US citizens. Uh, You know, trafficking, while it may seem exotic and unique, you know, we just really see it every day here in the clinic. And so it becomes very pedestrian to us. Mm -hmm. And I wish it could become more pedestrian to you and your listeners, because the reality is that this has been part of the history of our country for a very long time, starting with slavery, moving to debt peonage, then involuntary servitude, and now human trafficking, it is really 
a tale as old as time that people want to make money off of vulnerable individuals. That's I totally understand that. I guess what I'm trying to make sure I can understand is parsing what the difference would be between this and, for example, if you have someone who's in lesser means and they want to get a job, you know, you've had, like you mentioned, the various types of slavery. You've had uh, uh, slavery. You had indentured servitude, which is effectively just slavery, but it's a little bit different. You have people who are working for wages and don't have a lot of options. So in that sense, they could be kind of forced to do it. So there's a gradient that can last here. And I guess what I'm trying to figure out to make sure I understand for you what the distinction would be between scenarios of people doing work who don't have a lot of different options versus uh what we're referring to as human trafficking so that we're not necessarily muddying the waters of what one is versus the other. Well, my life would be a lot easier if there was a very bright line word, <laughs> a bright line right. between um, what people want to ask me about lots of times of this is really crappy work uh, versus is this illegal exploitation that falls under the category of human trafficking. And so, and that line that there isn't that bright line. What I will say, the kinds of things I think about when I'm taking on cases and I am trying to work it out is, does this person have the ability to move freely in the market? And what I mean by that is it may be a market of crappy job to crappy job, but is there freedom of movement in that way? And so a great example about what you were talking about in Qatar and the World Cup, many of those workers were brought in from a foreign country and actually didn't have freedom of movement to other jobs within that country, that they were very much controlled by their employer and the fact that they were in a foreign land. And so, yes, would a case involving a university student, you know, look different from the outside than a case involving a foreign worker brought here completely, um, you know, under the control and power of, a, of an employer in the U.S.? Of course, but at its core and on its legal basis, it's pretty much the same. There's a vulnerability and there's someone with power who's taking advantage of that vulnerability to make a, to, make, to have a commercial benefit, so whether the, that's in the commercial sex industry or in any other type of labor. Got it. So the vulnerability is also a, uh, a element or a crucial factor, you would say, in whether it's human trafficking versus not. Yes. And vulnerability can look like in lots of different things, right? It can be foreign national status. It can be that you are in the foster care system. It can be that you've had a lot of trauma in your life. It can be that you are poor, that you don't have a home, that, you, you know, it, it can be lots of different things. The question just is, is someone taking advantage of that vulnerability um, to, to profit off of you? And I think, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the World Cup, because one of the other things that happens in this space is not only do we want to make trafficking something really exotic and unique that requires organized crime and international transportation, we also want to think it only comes to our community once or twice a year, right? With the Super Bowl or a big convention. And those myths are really dangerous because they send the message that, especially around the Super Bowl, they send the message that sex trafficking isn't a problem in our community until the Super Bowl comes to town and that we don't have to think about it any other days. And that there aren't people in our community who are creating that demand for sex trafficking. It's these other people who come to town. And so whenever I hear those myths about the Super Bowl or other things, I think, oh, those are people who really only want to think about trafficking once a year. It's very fascinating. And we're speaking with uh, we're speaking with Bridget Carr, the founding director of the Human Trafficking clinic at Michigan Law, who's given me a lot to think about, and I'm sure you as well, as uh, we want to hear from you. What questions do you have about human trafficking? How big of a problem do you think it is? And what ways have you seen or do you think trafficking shows up in our world? Give us a call. 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. And we can work you into the conversation, just like Big Neo on Twitter, who says the first thing that comes up to his mind is slave ships taking people from Africa and then the cabals in Mexico. And finally, the governors of Florida and Texas, Ron DeSantis and Greg 
Abbott uh, talking a little bit about taking advantage of folks who don't have a lot of means, come from foreign lands. But we want to talk about the problem, shed light on that. We also want to get into solutions. So when we return here on Detroit Today, we are going to take a look at what are some of the things that we can do, uh, not only shedding light on the subject, but to also help curtail the problem, unpack it more uh, with Bridget Carr and be joined by a former FBI official to let us know what law enforcement's take is on the issue. That happens next as we return on Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. Detroit Today here on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson. He'll be back with you tomorrow. But right now we are joined by Bridget Carr, who is the uh, director of the uh, Human Trafficking Clinic, the founding director at Michigan Law. We're going to speak with Andy Arena in just a moment. But before I do that, I have a call from Ginny who I want to make sure we get on the line right now. So, Jenny, go ahead, Nan Arbor. You're on Detroit today. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Go ahead with the, your comment. Yeah. So, um, if I call in and add my story to um, the conversation. So, when I was 18 years old, I was contacted via um, my friend's uh, uh, older sister. And... Her conversation and her narrative was, you know, empowerment and, um, uh, you know, taking control of your life. And it was almost like a a, a multi-level marketing uh, situation when I think back to it. Uh, So she just really convinced me that this was the best route to go, that I could have everything that I want. Um, And the way she pulled me in really was through a sexual relationship. Um, she convinced me that she was in love with me and that we were, you know, meant to be together and that we would do this all together. But in reality, I was 18 years old and she was almost 30 and, um, I was just being played and put into these situations where I couldn't get out of, they were dangerous. And I was supplied with a lot of, um, illicit substances, Oh. Jenny, and I know that's a pseudonym. I really thank you for uh, opening up and being willing to share that story with us. Before I go to Bridget, just a couple of things, if, if you're okay with sharing. Uh, sure. For folks who aren't so familiar, I don't know if you said it, can you tell us in and around what area that is was in or this occurred? Because a lot of people, again, think it happens in specific environments, but I kind of wanted to know where you were at that time. I'm not originally from um, Southeast Michigan. I'm actually from um, California. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the community I'm from is actually a higher um, income community. Very, very much uh, um, a nice area that many people want to live in, we'll say. Mm -hmm. And um, you would not think this, guess this, that it's happening. But the amount of uh, young girls that I encountered definitely showed how prevalent it was in our upper upper middle class community. Yeah, yeah. And the other question I would have, uh, again, just uh, to let people little, know a little bit more about it, is uh, how long did this go on for and how were you able to get out? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so it went on for about two or three years. And um, the way that I was able to get out of it um, Bridget actually had mentioned that um, it's a matter of just kind of staying in, in the community in, in many op- and situations, um, and that was me. So what I did was I changed my phone number so I wasn't able to be contacted. Um, I moved out of my home and to a new, new place, and I made sure that any connections that I originally had 
um, were severed and I just essentially became invisible. Yeah. Um, yeah so that's kind of how I, I was able to, to get out of it. And, uh, I'll be honest, um, truthfully, I didn't know that I was being trafficked right. until about two years ago, honestly. And I'm, um, in my late thirties, um, with, uh, I was in therapy and my therapist said, you know, this is, this is sounding like a trafficking, um, situation. And I did some research and I looked into it and I just, my gosh, that, yeah. that is what happened. So even I didn't know what was happening to me. You know, Jenny, again, I, I can't help but uh, say how much I appreciate you adding to this conversation because there could be people listening right now who might be in a similar boat and think, man, I don't even notice it, reflect back, see what's really going on. So again, thank you for sharing. But Bridget, I'm sure you have lots of thoughts. I'm sure this is a story that you've heard in your time. Uh, What response do you have uh, to that harrowing story? Well, Jenny, first off, I really appreciate you sharing your story. And also, I'm so sorry that it happened to you. I think what Jenny reflects is that, again, it's about these relationships. You know, um, if trafficking was people being snatched or happening in target parking lots, right? There's a gazillion surveillance cameras. People have their iPhones. It would be captured, but it's so much harder to see what's happening in relationship with people, right? And so Jenny probably had friends and family who knew her at this time that she was really being recruited by this trafficker who could see this vulnerability in Jenny that maybe she didn't even see in herself and built this trust and relationship. And Look, in most cases, you never have your victim do the super exploitive thing on day one, right? You're often kind and caring, and you might even give them some money and take care of them, again, to build that relationship. And so I think what Jenny just shows us is how it can happen in the community that we grew up in, in in a wealthier community, but that it can happen through relationship and that it really does take a lot of effort to get out. I mean, what Jenny showed of how she helped herself out of that situation is so admirable, but is often impossible for many, many people who are being trafficked. Yeah, yeah. Very difficult. But Jenny, again, appreciate so much your call and uh, you take care out there uh, as you continue on your journey. Thanks so much. As uh, we continue our discussion about human trafficking here on 1019 WDET, I want to take a look also at the efforts on the side of law enforcement and what they are attempting to do in order to curtail this issue. So to join us right now in this conversation, I have Andrew Arena, the executive director of the Detroit Crime Commission and the former FBI special agent in charge of the Detroit Division. Andy, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, good morning. Hey, good morning to you. So what is the FBI looking for when it comes to human trafficking? Are there any signals that uh, law enforcement looks for uh, as you work in that arena? No pun intended. Uh, uh, what exactly does the FBI look for in terms of this subject? Well, I, I think the way that law enforcement, and federal law enforcement in particular, has approached this issue it, it's changed dramatically over the years. And I can remember <clears throat> excuse me, when I first started in the late 1980s, um, you know, these people were treated as, uh, they were criminalized, right? They were treated as the problem, as the source of the problem. And I think that law enforcement has started to understand that um, they're victims, right? These are people that are being manipulated uh, and are being used. So I think, you know, looking, just a perception, uh, the perspective of how you look at it has certainly changed. And I think that helps law enforcement in how they, how they address it. I think the other thing is... Um, you know, in many in many instances, this is not just one or two individuals. Uh, this is these are criminal organizations, right? They're trafficking people overseas. They're trafficking trafficking uh, people interstate, uh, and so using the tools um, that law enforcement has developed to attack organized crime or drug cartels, you know, kind of using that perception that that concept to go after these these organizations. Uh, you know, I think it gives you a better chance to, to really take down uh, the upper echelon. And really, that, that's, what, uh, that's what you want to do. So, you know, I, I think how they treat the problem, how they look at these, these victims, uh, which is really what they are, and then the, the tools, right? And a lot of it's technology now. Um, you know, it, it, a lot of this is happening on the dark web, uh, the ability to move these people, to, to manipulate them, to recruit them. 
Uh, you know, a lot of it is certainly happening uh, in in that spectrum too. So, you know, I think the tools of perception has certainly changed in uh, over, over the, uh, particularly the last ten years. From your perspective, especially working in and around Detroit and Southeast Michigan, uh, what does human trafficking look like in the area in terms of uh, how it's changed, what it looks like now, and, and some of the most common ways it occurs that you see or you saw? Well, I, you know, I was listening to the, the end of the last segment. I think Bridge is exactly right. I mean, you know, the perception that it's a lower so- socioeconomic problem and it doesn't really address us or it's, you know, uh, people coming over the border – that's all. That's part of the problem. I mean, it's so very, very diverse, and I and I know that for whatever reason, uh, Southeast Michigan has been in the top five uh, areas in the country uh, year after year after year for human trafficking, and so it, it it is a problem. And it's just not lower socioeconomic. I live in Northville, very affluent uh, community, uh, suburb of Detroit. Right. We've had human trafficking cases here, Bloomfield Hills, right. So it's not it's it's not something you can just ignore and say oh that doesn't happen here it's not my problem it could be I you know I'm the father of three girls uh, so this is a problem that really hits home to me uh, it, it's in all of our backyards and I think that uh, you know I think that's certainly a misconception that that it's not well in terms of misunderstandings that you think people have in terms of uh, what you guys are trying to do or what FBI used to try to do law enforcement tried to do to prevent this and misconceptions that you would like the public to know about to aid and uh, hopefully bring in some awareness and preventing this issue what is the thing that you would most like to clear up related to this subject well kind of just what I just said I, I think that um, it, it, it's it's in your backyard uh, don't think that it's not don't think this is a problem that's, that that could not affect you and your family. Uh, it could affect any any one of us. And you know, I'm sure Bridget and your last caller. You know, that that's a that's a wonderful story to kind of illustrate. Um, you know how this happens, right? Um, these are vulnerable people. These are are, are individuals who are manipulated. Uh, some of them are forced uh, physically. Some of them may be forced psychologically. But um, you know, I think that. Their ability to move, their ability to uh, be themselves, to do what they want to do, is certainly curtailed, uh, and, and they're certainly used. So I, I, you know, I would just want people to realize that this is something, don't think that it couldn't happen to you. This is something that could affect your family, uh, and you really have to, to understand it. That's right. And we're speaking again with uh, Andy Arena, former uh, FBI special agent in charge of the Detroit Division and current executive director of the Detroit Crime Commission, as well as Bridget Carr, the founding director of the Human Trafficking Clinic at Michigan Law. And as I mentioned, we also want to speak with you, include you in the conversation, especially because we're bringing awareness to this subject and especially because it's something that we know is misunderstood out there. What questions do you have? What comments do you have? How prevalent do you think this issue is and what would you like to know give us a call 313-577-1019 again 313-577-1019 and we can work you into the conversation like we're doing right now with connor in detroit go ahead connor you're on detroit today uh yes i i would just like to describe a situation that i experienced a few years back that I still bothers me to this day i was in a uh large health food store just in the suburbs of detroit uh few years back, and uh, I noticed a tall uh, African-American-looking woman going to the store. <clears throat> she was she had a, a, a nice little outfit on, but she she uh, her hair was very tattered, and her clothes looked like she had been sleeping in them for like uh, for days. So that was just unusual. And um, and when when I got in line, I was just right behind her, and I noticed. She kept turning back and looking at me as though she wanted to say something. Um, and I just thought, well, maybe she I look like somebody she knew or something. So, you know, I never really responded to it or anything. But um, she was just very striking. And then she she bought some, uh, she, all she bought at the health store was uh, a sandwich and a drink. And so I just I just thought it was hot. But when, I, when she left, she left just before me. And so I came out right after her and I was just kind of curious so I kind of you know kept my eyes on her and as she uh, left she there was a, a large SUV waiting she walked up to the SUV the windows were dark she she uh, guy jumped out of the uh, back seat of the car um, and let her in and then got in and, and he happened to be uh, a white older guy with long hair mm-hmm 
and uh, she, she they jumped in the car. So I, I thought, well, you know, this looks strange. So I started to wait to, yeah. just to get the plate. But um, I said, well, I don't want to be obvious. So I tried to move toward my car, and by that time it was gone. Yeah. So, yeah. so I just think that was the case, and it just still yeah. bothers me today that I didn't respond more. Well, what we want to do now then is with situations like that, I, I understand there can be a concern about not getting involved in business that you don't know anything about versus safety and security for your era, especially area, especially when you see something that looks out of place. Uh, Andy, what would you recommend an individual who's in a similar situation to Connor in Detroit do in a circumstance like that? What's best practice? Well, it's the old see something, say something. And I think part of it uh, is certainly educating the public. Like, So we're doing a lot at the Crime Commission. We're doing a lot of education with uh, the hotel industry, right? So can they I, better help them to identify human trafficking, uh, you know, in, in and around their environments? But, you know, I think we need a, a lot greater uh, kind of what you're doing here today, right? We really need to educate the public that if you see something like that, and I could tell it really bothered that caller, right? Um, he just, you know, the, the, the hair on the back of his neck was, was up, and I think he wishes that he would have done something. You know, we certainly can't blame him for that, but, I, you know, I think just the education, if you see something, uh, let law enforcement know. Yeah, yeah. Bridget, safety of the individuals involved there, uh, the uh, survivors, is also of utmost concern. What comment would you have in response? It is, and I also just want to make clear that, you know, we don't have any evidence-based indicators for mm-hmm. what might tell us what's human trafficking. And I am an expert on human trafficking. And I was in my community and saw a child peddling something and all of my alarm bells rang. And I reached out to law enforcement and waited 45 minutes for someone to show up in my community. Years later, an FBI agent shared with me that those same children were identified and they were being exploited. But I just want to make it really clear, just because we throw the label human trafficking on something doesn't mean we have these magical forces and community support available for individuals. I talk to so many people who say, I think my child is being trafficked. Can you help me? And I want to say, just because that label gets involved doesn't mean we have more law enforcement or more shelter beds or more community support. The reality is that many communities don't have enough support for vulnerable individuals. And what that caller just described to me was a potentially vulnerable individual. And so I wanna say to everyone listening, put your efforts into making sure there are enough beds for the people in your community. There are enough homes for people in your community. And if we can reduce vulnerability overall, we will have done some of the best anti-trafficking work possible. A a very good point there. And we are going to continue with this conversation here on Detroit Today with your calls as well. 313-577-1019. We have calls right now from uh, Leah, Haley, and Nick in Detroit, which I promise isn't me. We'll get to you guys next when we return right here on Detroit Today. Today on 1019 WDET, where I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson, who's back in the big chair tomorrow, uh, talking about a very important topic, shedding some light on it. Important to me, I know important to our guest, human trafficking. Speaking right now with Bridget Carr, the founding director of the Human Trafficking Clinic at Michigan Law, as well as uh, Andy Arena, the executive director of the Detroit Crime Commission and former FBI special agent in charge for the Detroit division and also very important to you as the call, the lines are full and we want to get into your uh, discussion right now as we move to Leah in Ann Arbor. You are next on Detroit Today. Go ahead. Thank you so much and thanks to all of you for bringing up this topic. I just wanted to call in to give some encouragement to people who maybe, you know, hear this and like, like you said, Bridget, it's a once a year thing or it freaks them out or they think, like Andy said, not my daughter. Um, And I moved to Ann Arbor from also from the West Coast, where I lived for the last 10 years. And in my old neighborhood, which was solidly upper middle class, 
I started noticing, I'd go walk my dog, that there were a couple of women who didn't look like they, you know, they didn't look like the typical neighbor. They didn't raise their heads when they walked down the street. Someone would say, you'd say hi, they wouldn't respond. And I thought, this is strange. Like you notice, oh, there are people here who I don't see all the time. What's going on? And so instead of just walking by, I decided I should make friends with, with these women. And I just would say, hello, how are you? I was persistent and kind. And one day, one of the women asked me if she could visit me at my house. And I had let her know where I lived. And I said, of course, come for a warm meal. You know, um, it turned out she worked um, in a domestic job. It was basically um, domestic enslavement. And I didn't learn this until months after I'd been saying hi to her. And she came over for a meal. And in the course of uh, feeding this woman, who was very hungry, she told me her whole story. And she was being trafficked. And I asked her if there was some help I could provide. And she was very nervous about that. So on my own, I ended up going to our local sheriff's office where there was a human trafficking department. But my main reason for calling today is because I wanted to let other people know that I think making friends with women or anyone really, but um, in my case, like saying hi to people and asking them how they are on a regular basis, who maybe don't look like you or don't fit into your daily life is a really wonderful and important way to open up trust and build friendships that can save people. Yeah. Leah in Ann Arbor, thank you so much for that very uh, important story and also example of ways we can make an impact. Bridget, you were talking about how relationships can be exploited to start human trafficking. What I'm hearing there is that relationships can also be a thing with other people that can help bring people out of this process. Yes, I love this example. And I just encourage people to, to, to be like Leah from Ann Arbor. Um, I'm so grateful you're part of my community here in Ann Arbor, Leah. Uh, because the real answer is we have to know as much as we can, right? Who's in our community? Who's making our food if we're going out to a restaurant? You know, I can't tell you the number of times I've sat somewhere or that the menu has disclosed how a cow was treated or a chicken was treated but there is no information about how the worker in the back who's making that meal is treated or how that waiter who's serving that meal is treated. You know, can you get to know the people in your community? Can you get to know the farmers who are bringing that food to your table? Can can we, you know, I, I, I struggle with the see something, say something a bit because I think we don't know what we're looking for in some ways, but I love this idea of being in community and making sure we're taking care of the vulnerable people in our orbits. And if we did that, there would be so much less trafficking. Andy, from a law enforcement perspective, as I love those points from you, Bridget, uh, what do you think about Leah's uh, strategy there uh, in terms of helping out and preventing and curtailing this issue? Well, I think it's perfect. And I think the first part of that is she was observant, right? So she, she, she felt something wasn't right, and she didn't just ignore it, right? She just, she kept watching, she kept trying to interact with that person, and it paid off. So, you know, I think there was obviously some real persistence by her, and, uh, you, know, God, you know, God bless her. Yeah, yeah. Moving now to Stacy in Shelby Township. Go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Hi, good morning. Um, as a landlord, we were trying to figure out how to give back and um, maybe help the community where some of our homes are in. And um, just wondering if there's any help for landlords, like to house people that are trying to get out of a trafficking situation, maybe transition. Is there any community support or grants? Like, I'm just trying to figure out how to not go under and literally give the house away. Sure, sure. And we are looking for solutions here, Bridget. You were discussing a little bit earlier about ways that people can make an impact. Stacy and Shelby Township wants to. What recommendations would you have for her and other landlords out there? I love this, Stacy, because the first thing I say to people who want to work on trafficking is stay in your lane because you're brilliant in your lane and you know things that we don't know. And so I love that you're trying to think about how you can help in your capacity as a landlord. I'd really encourage you to connect with folks in your community who are working on affordable housing solutions. We don't think about those folks as being on the front lines of fighting trafficking, but they really are. And if we can increase the number of affordable housing units in our community and make sure that um, people who don't have access to safe 
and stable shelter get that access, we really take away the power that traffickers have over people who are vulnerable like that. So I would maybe not be searching out trafficking orgs necessarily, but really saying who is doing the frontline work and making sure people in my community are housed and talk to them and see how you might be able to assist. Uh, excellent points there. Andy, are you aware of any resources that people might not know about that can be helpful in this process of protecting some of the most vulnerable around us? So there's a lot of organizations out there doing a lot of great work. One of my one of my issues, though, is a lot of them are working in a vacuum, right? They're not really working uh, with other organizations to try to get them together to kind of enforce, uh, address the issue. Uh, you know, there's money. I know the state right now uh, has, has uh, several million dollars in, in grants for human trafficking. Um, you know, we're actually researching a little bit of that at the Crime Commission right now to see if we fit one of those lanes. So, you know, I, I think if we just keep educating people that, that this is a very, very real problem, uh, you know, hopefully the money will come, which, you know, as Bridget said, there's just not, there's not enough beds out there, right? If, if, if you get these folks and you try to get them out of their life, you try to get them help, um, there's just not enough help out there. And so, you know, that's something we really got to focus on. Right, right. We're going to move right now to Haley in Flat Rock. Haley, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Hi. Um, so I wanted to, the first girl that called in talked about how, a lot of people don't even know that they're being trafficked at all. And I kind of wanted to share a little bit of my experience. Um, as a child, I had, I was adopted. I went through the foster care system um, and I had a lot of trauma surrounding that. So back in the nineties, there was still a lot of research being done with child development and things like ADHD and um, like reactive attachment disorder. And, you started seeing all of these facilities popping up that were residential schools for children that um, had mental health crises. Well, and a lot of the times they were like labeled as like boot camps, wilderness therapy. You hear about a lot sending your kids out into the woods for therapy. And a lot of these programs that offer what is, what they say is mental health care, all they want you for is the insurance money. We saw like the Paris Hilton documentary um, where she talked about what she went through as a teenager. That is a case of legal human trafficking, in my opinion. Um, You're literally put through all of these horrific types of abuses for the sake of someone else profiting off of your insurance. So, a lot of people, a lot of parents don't know that their children are being trafficked right out from underneath them for benefits. So I, I wanted to bring attention to that. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, doing that, Haley, and Flat Rock. And I do present that to you, Bridget, because you were bringing more novel approaches or ways of looking at human trafficking that I hadn't thought so much about uh, that you brought to this conversation. What do you think of Haley's point there with her uh, experience in that system? Well, Haley, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And I think, look, we have to be willing to examine the situations we put vulnerable people in. And the vulnerable people includes kids, right? And we can't just trust that these systems who do who do in many situations have a profit um, in mind are doing what we want them to do. You know, over the decades, we have definitely changed the way we treat children in this society. And I have no doubt that we will look back decades from now and see situations that we put kids in, um, even perhaps in some of our child welfare systems and say, that's just not best practice anymore. And so whether all of those situations or any of those situations would cross the line into human trafficking, again, it goes back to that bright line question, Nick, that you asked me earlier. Is there this really clear line? Um, And there's not. But um, I just think, you know, we want to take better care of vulnerable folks in our society. And we want to believe them when they tell us that something's harming them. Yeah. Haley and Flat Rock, again, thank you for joining the conversation. I got time for maybe one more call. You got about a minute, Nick, in Detroit. Go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Uh, Thank you again for, uh, as always, bringing up topics that expand our view and our perspective of, of our community. Um, I had an experience recently um, with a hotel in uh, Detroit uh, as a, a national chain um, casino base, 
and I, I toured their security uh, facilities. They uh, happened to have a room set aside at the hotel for uh, intake in cases where they uh, encounter victims and they treat people as victims. Um, you can imagine, uh, like with the NFL draft coming here and other big uh, uh, events uh, where things do come into town, instead of treating people as perpetrators um, and contributing to their own um, situation, they completely rechanged their their um, their approach. Uh, working with law enforcement, understanding people as victims, reaching out to them where they are, it completely changed the layout of the room, made it welcoming, and provided resources for them, uh, support for them, just encouraged them to 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 have what they need. And and this is, I think, five or six years ago, and and it, it impressed me. I don't go to casinos, but to have to see that uh, that change in the private sector. Uh, independent of of law enforcement, just it was really encouraging, and uh, and I would seek that uh, that entity out uh, in the future. And 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 the other comment I just want to quick make a uh, piggyback um, off of what the, uh, the, the the expert was saying is about vulnerable people. And Magna Chokravarti had a, a, a show on the other day about um, uh, the vulnerability of people who are addicts working for. Um, like uh, thrift shops and things like that, uh, 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 and wind up getting trafficked uh, um, and, uh, as an issue there as well. Right, right. I, I know you brought up a little bit, Andy, about how law enforcement is not treating or is moving away from treating uh, individuals who are being trafficked or individuals who are getting prosecuted for crimes like prostitution and such, not as much looking at them more to try to protect them instead of be prosecuting them so that they can feel free to come forward. But with Nick's comment there, uh, we have to close out the show as I'm running up on the end of it. But I do want to take a moment to thank both of our guests so much for joining us, starting off with you again, Andy Arena, uh, Executive Director of Detroit Crime Commission. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. And, of course, Bridget Carr, founding director of the Human Trafficking Clinic at Michigan Law. Really fascinating conversation. I learned a lot from this. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for us here on Detroit Today. As uh, you got to tune in tomorrow when we are going to dive into how Wayne County is critically short on working staff. But I want to remind you, if you like this show and enjoy listening to our program in general, please share it with your friends, your relatives, and maybe even your frenemies. You can find it at Detroit Today online at WDET.org or our Detroit Today podcast. Share that wherever you get your podcast. Trust me, by sharing it, it really helps out the show. It's 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation.